Such a privilege to be here. Uh, truly honored as I, I spoke with the leaders earlier this evening. Uh, love Dale uh, very much. Strong affections for Dale. Love the way his leadership is deployed here. Uh, love meeting with your leadership team here at Vertical and just the way those guys are pouring their lives into this ministry. If we don't know each other, uh, that's great. I'm glad that you're here and thank you for the privilege of allowing me just to open God's word with you this evening. And, and just a, a minute, uh, a second, a few seconds of my story is uh, I spent some time here and uh, if you just came back from spring break and you did some shameful things, uh, that I was definitely in that camp. And so uh, enslaved to pornography for a number of years, an abuser of women, uh, a sexual addict, an alcoholic, uh, coke problem at one point, ecstasy also, uh, got high for every day of my life for a season, uh, that's who I am, uh, Jesus came in, the Holy Spirit invaded my heart and uh, really began to make my life over, uh, eventually got married and what happened is when I began to pour the scripture into my life and I began uh, to not just fall in love with Jesus but, but to learn the rules then there was this drift from this younger brother to the older brother where I started thinking that Christianity was just about being good. And, uh, and then it, it's so funny because all of those things, like some of you are still shocked I said those things. Uh, I became shocked when people did those things and, and became judgmental and say, oh, that's gross and, and not seeing my own self-righteousness and legalism as just as gross as those things. So I've really been the younger brother and the older brother. Uh, I have, um, you know, I, I have my master's in sin and, um, and so it's a privilege to share with you about the one who died for those sins and uh, literally rose from the grave in, in really the greatest act of, of history and has adopted me into his kingdom. And I can't wait to be there with, with many of you. Uh, I hope all of you forever and ever and ever and ever. When I left Waco, I wanted to be great. I, that was my, really my number one goal. I wanted to be great, and I wanted to be a millionaire before I was 30, and I wanted to dive in with corporate America. I wanted to take the things that I've learned and deploy them, and, and I wanted to, to chase and pursue the American dream, and I thought I knew what greatness was, and really, it was just this effort to, feel, to fool the world into believing that I'm important. I wanted you to think that I'm important. That was kind of my number one aspiration in life. Every day when I woke up, I didn't really know that it was, but it was, and so it reminds me of, of a video I've seen uh, one time, and it's just become a parable for me, and so if you would, just, just watch this. My name is Brett. I'm 21 years old living in New York City, the greatest city in the world. My whole life, I've always wondered what it would feel like to be famous. Nowadays, it seems like anyone can achieve fame. Why can't I do it too? So I came up with this crazy idea. I could probably walk around these same streets tonight and immediately become the center of attention just by appearing to be important. To pull this off, I changed my appearance to make myself look like a typical celebrity. Then I gathered an entourage and came up with a plan of action. I'll have bodyguards, assistants, and a few photographers follow me around Times Square, and of course I'll bring along a camera crew to film every second of it. We'll walk past thousands of people. They'll have no idea who I am or where I'm from, but they're all going to fall for it. Hey, hey, hey. 
Brett Cullen. Yeah. Where do you know him from? Well, uh, he's a Spider-Man? Yeah. 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 Very, very good actress. You, you liked him there? Yeah, yeah. Have you heard any of his music? Any of his new music? Um, I heard his first single. Which yeah. Was good. Yeah. I don't know the name of it, but I heard it in the radio. It, it is good, yeah. Yeah. I think I think he's excellent. I think he's absolutely awesome. I think he's got a great future in uh, in the movie business. And I just took a picture with him. You know what I mean? I feel special. Yeah. So, dude said I just took a picture with him, so I feel special. And so, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that scene? What's wrong with that video? Is you got the wrong thing in the middle? You got this guy trying to convince this area that he's important, and and so there, there's he's walking through the crowd, and everyone's huddling up around him. They want to be near him. They want to get close to him, and it's all foolish. We watch it, and we're like, that's kind of silly. And yet, we're going to leave here and and really try to do the same thing with our lives. We're going to try to convince the world that we're important, that we deserve to be in the middle, pursue the American dream. Uh, think about, hey, how do we use the next, you know, I don't know, 60 years of our life, maybe 70 years of our life, into tricking the world that we're important and then die like everyone else who's ever lived. And, and it's, it's kind of a growing problem. Like they're saying things about us. New York Times said that it's not just the generation of self, but it's the selfie generation. That we become so obsessed with ourselves that, that imagine this, that 10 years ago virtually no one took a picture of themselves. And now we've invented a word that's been put into Webster's Dictionary. And not only that, but the camera on our phones has moved from one side really to the other side to face us. Because we love us. And because we want the world to love us. And the more that we want the world to love us, the less we really care when we're all by ourselves, alone in our bed, if the world actually loves Jesus. I'll share with you some statistics. These come from uh, a book Mark Rainier wrote in Pew, uh, Pew Research Study uh, about people 18, between 18 and 30, if that's you, it, it's about us. And so uh, 8 out of 10 of us believe we are very important. That's 80%. When you compare that to 1950, who said 12%, 12% thought they were very important. The number one goal of young adults is to get rich, 81%. And the number two goal, to get famous. Very shallow goals. Uh, the number one question being asked among us is when considering opportunities is what's in it for me? When you begin interviewing and thinking about your career, what's in it for me? Vacation, where you're going, what's in it for me? 96% believe we will do something great. And so you would think that we have this high self-esteem and we're encouraged and, and we're joyful. Not the case. The highest levels of narcissism have led to the highest levels of depression and anxiety than any other generation that has ever been on the planet. Why? Because we think about us too much. You were not meant to hold the universe in order. You cannot bear that burden. It will not go well for you. Forty-four percent said they felt depressed. 10% have considered suicide. 
And so this desire to be great has led to disappointment, depression, social anxiety, unnecessary stress, narcissism. And so I, I want to talk with you for a few minutes uh, about really the topic, how to be great, otherwise known as pride and narcissism. Narcissism just comes from Greek mythology, uh, the god Narcissus, who uh, was cursed and, and couldn't stop staring at his own reflection until he died. He was obsessed with himself. So, so pride and narcissism. Uh, I'm going to be in Mark chapter 10 if you want to turn there. Uh, we're going to look at, at the life of Jesus. And really where we're head through this is we're going to look at how Jesus is the greatest, which means that we are not the greatest. And then before you leave here this evening, how you can be great. To set this up, there's some uh, turmoil amongst the governments and the Jews. And so Romans are oppressing the Jewish people, and the Jews then are waiting for this messianic character to enter the scene to free them from Roman oppression so that they can have all of the things that God has promised them. And then there's these 12 men that we know now as the disciples that were left without a rabbi. So no rabbi took them under their wings. They're kind of left with, okay, what do we got to do? Now we got to be fishermen for a living or tax collectors or we got to get a job. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he takes them under their, his wing. And, and these guys, they're, about, they're between 18 and 35. They're, they're young adults, okay, these men. And they're hanging out with Jesus. They're on their way, verse 32. They're on the way up to Jerusalem. With Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished, is the word, while those who followed were afraid. Hey, just in that one sentence, why were they afraid? Like, can you imagine, like, Jesus is walking around like that dude in Times Square, and people are whispering, and they're looking, and they're afraid to get close to him. They're afraid? Why are they afraid? The only thing I know how to compare it to is one time when I was in the jungles of Africa, and I saw a lion. I was about 15 feet from a male lion in the wild, no fence, you know, I'm in a vehicle with no top. I was really wishing it had a top. And, and, it just, and just like seeing the beauty of that animal, the beauty of that creation, and knowing that at its will it could kill me and devour me. This man had been raising people from the dead, making the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk. They're like, who is this man? Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. This is thousands of years of prophecy culminating right here. This is the gospel, the act in history that saves you when you trusted it as a payment for the things you did on spring break. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What, what do you want me to do? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> so Jesus is like, Hey guys, come here, man. Listen, uh, I'm going to go. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to beat the crud out of me. Okay? They're going to kill me publicly, flog me, spit on me, cuss at me. They're going to hang me, on, hang me up on some logs. I'm going to bleed out. And James is like, okay, I think it's a good time to ask him. <laughs> this is our chance. Uh, that, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus, when you said, hey, can we make this about us for a second? What do we get for following you? What's in it for us? 
And you think, what a boneheaded move, but really they did this all the time. Like, let me just show you a couple of scriptures. Matthew 18, 1. These guys were constantly wondering who was the greatest. At the time, the disciples kept saying to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Mark 9, verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Luke 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They couldn't see who Jesus was because they were so focused on themselves thinking, hey, what's in it for me? When are we going to get what we have coming to us? When are you going to free us from the Romans? When do we get the stuff? When do we get success? When do we get to be famous? And so like, like there's Gen Y and then Generation Z and they're asking what's in it for me? Generation A, these guys, they're still asking or they were asking first, what's in it for me? And so the first thing I want to bring your attention to, my first point is that, that as we think about how to be great, you have to understand that Jesus is the greatest. Let me say it slowly for you. Jesus, he is the greatest thing in your life, more than your professor, your parents, mom, dad, your boyfriend or girlfriend. The money you'll make, the job that you'll have, your pet at home, anything, Jesus is the greatest. And so we have to have a perspective that comes from knowing this truth that we will live for Jesus. Because if you don't do that, you're going to leave here. And you're going to play Christian. And you're going to start to go through the motions. Your heart's going to drift And you're going to feel like you're doing it by yourself, saying you have faith in amazing God and trying really hard, and you're not going to be able to sleep at night because you're so worried about that test. You're going to feel anxious, so worried about that relationship, worried what she's doing, what he's doing, where you're going next. And you're going to feel these waves of anxiety crashing over you. All while saying, I believe in the big God who loves me and died for my sins and rose from the dead, and he calls me to be strong and courageous and I go to church, and I have a faith. But you're still trying to be the greatest. And it's not going to go well for you. If you do that, you've missed your purpose. See, your purpose begins to point to the one who's the greatest. And anytime you use something outside of its purpose, it begins to break down. And you will begin to break down from the inside out. That will happen to you. Some of you, it's happened to you. Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, He's the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And the disciples were made by Jesus and for Jesus. But they couldn't see it because they kept thinking about them. And the truth is about me, guys, is for many moments in my life, I don't want to worship Jesus on the throne. I want to fight him for it. I want to be on the throne. And I want you to worship me on the throne. And sometimes what, what gets in the way from you seeing Jesus in my life is me. Like when I'm supposed to point you to him, I'm really, I'm really distracting you with me. That I want you to like me. And think I'm good at what I do. 
and that I dress well, and, and that I got my life together. When, when really I, I'm, I'm very literally an anxious mess without Christ and his Holy Spirit at work. And I want you to know if that's where you're at, it's not your fault completely. You have some really bad role models. Like the people that were tempted to worship here, they want to be great. And they want to convince you that the way to live your life is to try to be great. And, and it doesn't go well for them. It's not going to go well for you. But I'll give you a few examples. Lady Gaga, um, she lives for the applause. Um, Drake is saying he's the freaking man. You don't get it, do you? Type of money acting, making, acting like everybody knew you. I messed that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to show you my rap skills and I just totally dropped the ball. Aloe Black is the man, is the man, is the man. Kanye West. <laughs> Amen. No one loves Kanye more than Kanye. He said this to BBC. He said, I'm a God. And everybody's like, who does he think he is? I just told you who I think I am. A God. I just told you. That's who I think I am. And maybe you wouldn't say that like Kanye. But yeah, you want to build your life on your grades, on your, on your GPA, on your relationships, on, on your Greek life, whether you got into the fraternity or sorority or you're the president or the role that you play there. Or, or maybe that it's just that, maybe it's church for you. Like how gross is that when we take church and, and we make that a sandcastle and, and we try to be the one who's just better than everyone else? So that every time we talked about spring break and doing something awful, you're, you're kind of there and you're like, I didn't. Not me, I didn't. And it's like God can't even be proud of you because you're so proud of you. And so what about you? How do you want to be great? We see this in the scriptures three times this verse that scares me, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter verse 5, he says, um, clothe yourself in humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again in Proverbs and again in James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That, that the proud, those who think about themselves, are literally, very literally coming in the opposition of God. Like if you've, if you've been to a Baylor game, right, there's two teams and they wear different colors. And you know that, that the, the, the God's team is in green and gold, right? And then there's the other team, Satan's team, the other team, and they're wearing something else. And, and you're sitting there and, and it's like, okay, I'll just say it like this. So my, my daughter plays basketball and she uh, wears those pennies. You guys know it, those, those jerseys that you turn them inside out. There's two colors. One color on one side, one color on the other, white and purple for her. And so we go to the game, and she's on the white side. She's wearing white, the jersey, but her whole team is in purple, and the other team is white. And I tell her, I say, hey, you need to turn, turn your jersey inside out. She says, why? And I said, because right now you're playing for the other team. And when you walk around trying to make this life about you, sitting in the car thinking about you, replaying the conversations all the time about you, in the shower reliving the situations about you, you're playing for the wrong team. You are literally coming in against the opposition 
of the most powerful force in the entire world. Even if you are a believer, a a Jesus follower, when pride creeps in, if the enemy can tempt you to be prideful, you're coming against the, the strongest force in the universe. And so how can we take pride off and put on humility? Realize that we're not meant to be the greatest. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Hey, can one of us sit at your right and your left in your glory? You don't know what you're asking. Can, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's saying, hey, can you endure what I'm about to endure? Can you go through the calamity that I'm about to go through? You don't want to do that, guys. You don't understand what I just said. But you know what they say? He asks the question, can you do this? And they say, yeah, we can. We, we can do it. We're in. I don't even know what you said, but we watched a YouTube video yesterday on how to do it, so we're in. Isn't that what we do? Like, we like, if somebody, can you? Yeah, I can do anything. I don't even know. Yeah, I'm in. We can. We have this, this heightened view of self. And so the second idea from this text, you want to know how to be great, you have to understand that you're not the greatest. If Jesus is the greatest, then we just come down to this, this reality that we're not the greatest. See, for me, I left Waco. I went to the big city of Dallas. I was a small town kid. Yeah, the big city of Dallas. I got the job, y'all. It was the job I wanted. It was, it was the job that I could have done for the rest of my life. Started putting away in the 401k. It was a sales job. Image was important. I, I started buying the expensive suits. I bought the Jaguar S-Type. It was this car that I loved. I bought the penthouse condo in Uptown. If you've ever been in Uptown, I had this, this condo overlooking Clyde Warren Park in Dallas. Right at the top of the building. And, and everything seemed right. And I had the girl. And I was going to the, the bar. And I was, I was getting drunk. And I was going home. And I was living for the weekend. Wash, rinse, repeat. Because you know what sin does? It robs you of creativity. You do the same things over and over. Convincing yourself that's life. Man, this is so rich. So good. Man, we went to the party. Cake stands. Funnel. It was amazing. What are you doing this next weekend? We'll do the same thing. And your whole life passes you by and you realize, like, oh, I never really did anything with my life. I just kind of like a dog to his vomit returned to the same sins. But I, I stumbled into this church, hung over. I sat in the back row. I was wearing the clothes from the night before. The club it still smelled like smoke. Dude started talking about a horse. Started telling this story about this wild stallion that just wanted to be free. And, and he, he searched for food and his freedom and he roamed the mountaintops. And, and, he, and these people wanted to capture it because it was this beast of an animal. And I was like, man, I want to be free. I want to be free. I want freedom. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And he said this, this farmer, this villager successfully captured this horse, took him home. Loved him, cared for him, provided for him, broke him. And was eventually able to ride him. And when he, when he could ride the animal, he would lead it to food. And he would lead it to water. And he would protect it from the elements. And he said this line. He said, it wasn't until he was fully submissive to his master that he truly experienced freedom. And the Holy Spirit cracked open my heart. It wasn't until he was fully submissive to his master that he truly experienced freedom. That, that freedom in Christ comes through Submission. That victory comes through surrender. It's really backwards, counterintuitive, but absolutely theologically factual. True. And so to become great, 
like John the Baptist prayed, I had to become less so that God would become greater in my life. That, that God would be the one who leads. I heard it said that God doesn't make a man until he breaks a man. That God doesn't make a woman until he breaks a woman. And, and I, experientially, I've found that to be true. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That our purpose is found only when we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and begin to find our purpose in Him, living for Christ. That, that the only reason that God would save you and leave you here and not take you home in the moment that He saved you that he'd leave you here, that you have breath in your lungs, your heart beats in your chest, is so that you can bring others to know him and so that you can worship him in the things that you do. It's why you're alive. And your relationship and your parents and that pet and the grade and the professors and, and the degree and everything else takes a back seat to that. That those are really just opportunities to do more of that, to worship God. He's made you for a purpose, and we pay attention to what he's doing. And I want you to know that real greatness doesn't come overnight. It comes in long obedience in the same direction. See, what I spend a lot of my time with young adults, and, and it's like they want to, this experience, emotional, oh, this, I want to leave on this high of Jesus and just stay there. You want to experience Jesus? Suffer for him. That's what I see in the scriptures. That's when he showed up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's when he came into the lion's den with Daniel. That's when Stephen is getting stoned to death. He looks up and Jesus is there. Paul says, I want to know him and the fellowship is his sufferings, being like him in his death. You want, to, you want to know Jesus? You want to experience him? Suffer for him. That's different than a worship song, isn't it? That's different than a camp experience. I think this impatient mentality, it makes us feel like we're owed. Entitlement is such a scary thing, such a wicked disease, entitlement. See, our greatest disappointments in life come from our expectations. Anytime that you're disappointed, it's going to be because it's going to be because you expected something. You can think about that later. It's true. Your greatest disappointments in life come from your expectations, but entitlement, that's a flavor of expectations. It's the highest platform from which you fall. Entitlement is when you begin to feel like your first house should be like your parents' house, that you should leave here and get a six-figure job. Entitlement begins to, to feel like, like you deserve an A. How, how dare he or she not give you an A? You worked hard. You begin to feel like they, they deserve to go with you on the date, that, or you deserve to go uh, have them go with you on the date. Like You begin to feel owed by something. And it leads to depression and emptiness. And, and to prove this, I could just show you the suicide rates among those who have everything that you want. And I don't mean to say this lightly, but like we could look at the likes of Brittany Murphy or Heath Ledger or Junior Seau or Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston or Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse. And these are sad, sad tragedies. And I, I, but, but it would be a miss if we didn't learn from them. 
the, the folks, the people, men and women who have the things that we would love to have for ourselves are literally getting there and taking their life because they're saying it's not there. I'll read something Brad Pitt said to Rolling Stone in an interview. This is Brad Pitt. He said, man, I don't know. All these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. We got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want that. Rolling Stone says, so if we're heading toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? Brad Pitt responds, hey man, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain, and I'm sitting in it. And I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. And and Russell Brand said essentially the same thing Brad Pitt did. And Jim Carrey said that he wishes more people were famous so they could see that it's not satisfying. And Tom Brady, again in the Super Bowl, now has five Super Bowl rings, four-time Super Bowl MVP, three-times NFL MVP. He's married to the second most beautiful woman on the planet Earth, second only to my wife, Monica. And... And you know what he says when he's in an interview? He's like, man, they're like, dude, you have all this. What is it? What do you think? He he says, man, I I don't know. Why do I have all this? I think there's got to be more. I mean, I have Super Bowl rings and all this success, and I think there's got to be more than this. And they say, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. Hey, Tom, I know. I know the answer, Tommy. It's Jesus. You were made to live for Jesus. Not a weird-shaped ball. Not a ring, not a trophy, but the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. And when you don't do that, you're going to miss it. The answer for our depression and our anxiety, it's not having more or doing more or being more known. It's really serving in the name of Christ. Can I tell you um, two guys I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for? I've I've never met them, but I owe my life to them. They were SAEs at Baylor. I know it's since been kicked off campus, but they were SAEs at Baylor. And and, uh, a a guy I know, his name is Rick, was was at a party, an SAE party, and um, he was drunk. And these guys, these two men, they played the background. They, they didn't need to drink. They were full of joy all the time. They were always there to help somebody move or to care for them or to serve them. And he just noticed that. He said, man, there's something different about these guys. It was almost like they didn't care about their lives, but they had lost their lives for the sake of others. And they just wanted to serve everyone else around them. And they had this crazy joy about them. And you would have thought they were drunk, but they never drank. And he said, one day I asked, I asked them about it. I'm like, where does that come from? And they were so quick to tell me, it's from Jesus Christ. 
We, we understand why we're here and why we live and the purpose we have. And, and even while we're here at Baylor and why we're in Waco and why we're in college, we're, we're on a mission trip. Like some of you, you didn't go on a mission trip. You came back to one. You're going to wake up to one tomorrow. You have a mission trip. It's called your, your class, your psychology 101 class. That's your mission field. Your education class, whatever class, that, the, the thing you go to tomorrow, that's your mission field. And you know what they did? They, they led Rick to know Jesus Christ. And I met Rick in Dallas, and Rick led me to know Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for those two guys. That at a party, they didn't drink like everybody else. But not just what they didn't do, but what they did do. That they were the hands and feet of Jesus, serving like Jesus. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink and, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit in my right or my left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. They've been prepared for you. That's what you need to know. They've been prepared for you, for you and I, these places. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Wait a minute, guys, what are you doing trying to get Jesus all by yourself? Oh, you're just trying to one-up us, huh? Hey, come back here. Hey, hey, gather. And Jesus says, hey, come here. Come here. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Yeah, man, we know the Romans, man. They're crazy. Always flexing, showing authority. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Okay, he's about to tell us how we become great. He's about to, you guys ready? Hey, everybody lean in. Not so with you. Okay, we're different. Okay, you're different. What, what do we do? Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. See, we didn't. We don't do this. We we don't do this. Give me a famous person. Who's someone that you'd like to spend a day with? Chip Gaines. He's actually here. Chip, come on out. No, he's not. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm gonna go Justin Bieber. Okay. All right. I'm gonna go Justin Bieber. Because, you know, the Lord's doing something, I, I think, and, and you could spend time with him and, and share Jesus. And, and, uh, and you go to Justin's house. And, and just imagine being like, dude, Justin's like, hey, you want to you you play a game? No, no, dude. Hey, you want to go, go see the game room? No, dude. Hey, is that your maid right there? Yeah, yeah. That's like, Bro, that is amazing what she's doing, the way that she's serving. Watch her. Wow. The way that she's cleaning and dusting and. What an amazing, we don't, we'd be like, Justin, you know, I'm a believer, you know, but we wouldn't care about the maid, right? Because we got it all backwards. We overlooked the servants. Man, we're going to serve those people in the kingdom. We're missing it. Being great to God, being great to God who should matter more than anybody else, so that the God of the universe, the one who loves you, who made you, who knows how many hairs on your head. He says, you want to know what being great is? It means serving. My third point is if you want to be great, be the greatest servant. If you want to be great, be the greatest servant. Hey, anybody taking a leadership class here at Baylor or, or in Waco? Yeah, some of you? Okay. Um, you know, the leader, leader shows up in the Bible 
in the NIV 236 times. In the King James Version, any King James people out there? Okay, there's four of you. And so in the King James Version, guess how many times leader shows up? Some of the leaders like six. Uh, six times. It shows up six times. And the other times it's translated servant. Because God means this very literally. If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. And if you're not a servant, then the only one who matters, God, the one who matters most, doesn't see you as a leader. And so this is, this is the truth. In Matthew 6, Jesus literally says, you're storing up treasures in heaven. Like, I don't know if you've ever saved money or had to save for something or, or you know, maybe you saved for college. I don't know. But he says, you literally, you're putting stuff where you can enjoy it forever and ever and ever. I was at my daughter's soccer game on Saturday. And we had to leave early or like as soon as it was over because I was teaching at the Saturday service. And, and, um, and you know, she's uh, nine years old. And they're handing out the Capri Suns. You know, after the game, you get a Capri Sun. But the person, the mom who brought the Capri Sun said she didn't have enough for everyone. Well, my daughter's like thirsty. So she's like, Capri Sun. And, uh, and I'm watching her, you know, and we're leaving. And I go, hey, I don't think they had enough for everyone. And she goes, okay, well, that's interesting. And we got, and, and I go, why don't you go give yours to someone? She reluctantly goes up there, and she's like, anybody, oh, no, no, Dad, nobody, they all have one, you know. And so I'm like, oh, that's cool, that's cool. We're walking back to the car, long walk to the car. And I go, I just, I, I thought you'd want to make a deposit. And she said, what's a deposit? She's like, put out with Dad. And, um, and I'm like, you know, it, it's where you store something up with Jesus, and you get to enjoy it with him forever and ever and ever. Like if, if you would have given that Capri Sun to someone and just gone without, you, you in a billion years would get to enjoy that moment. And in two billion years, still get to enjoy that, that, that reward. Like Christ, you would set something at the feet of Christ that you get to enjoy forever and ever and ever. So much better than money or, or you know, sandcastles that we built here that are washed away with time. A deposit. Jesus here, he's going to be tried and tortured and killed. And he's casting vision for his followers to give their lives away. That whoever wants to be great must lose their life. And so what about you? If you were going to be tried for being a Christian, would you be found guilty? Like if it was illegal to be a Jesus follower here. And you went before the judge, would they have enough evidence to convict you, to send you away? And I hope that the defense attorney wouldn't just say, or the prosecuting attorney rather, wouldn't just say all the things you didn't do. They didn't listen to rap music or watch rated R movies, and they didn't cuss, and they didn't get drunk on spring break. I hope what they send you away with is all the things you did do. Man, they were talking about Jesus everywhere they went. It was amazing. Like, I, I listen, I'm telling you, this cat is guilty. She is completely guilty because of the way that she serves her other classmates and those in her sorority and, um, and, and the way that she dates and the way that he pursues women. Uh, we went on, on his, his search history on his computer and it was like Bible Gateway and gotquestions.org and 
Another cool way to ask this, maybe more modern, is like, what does your social media story tell? Is it that you're the life of the party? Or is it that you love Christ with your whole heart and you want to serve others around you? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Could you imagine if we loved like this? Do you know how, you, you know how we got here? Like Christianity was not a popular idea. Like how did it go from this, this time where they're, they're literally going to, to brutally kill Jesus on a cross to the largest religion in the world, the fastest growing religion in the world, this unstoppable movement that there's, there's even Christian universities and there's churches on every corner and there, there's, there's these large movements like in a time with just him and 11 guys who were all cowards. How did Christianity explode? It was known as the way because they said Jesus was the way. So Christianity in the first century was known as the way. Rodney Stark actually uh, said this in a CNN interview. If you don't know Rodney Stark, he is a distinguished professor here at Baylor. He said this, at the time when all other faiths were called into question, so this is during the uh, black plagues, 5,000 people were dying a day in Rome, second and third century, 5,000 people, imagine 5,000 people and them, them piled up in the middle of the, of the city every single day. They're like burning piles and piles of people. At a time when all other faiths were called into question, question the whole Christian community became a virtual army of nurses providing the basic needs of the suffering community. And he, he quotes Dionysius from the uh, 260 AD, from the 2nd century. He, he said this, Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed his, this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of the neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. He, he said they exchanged their health in order to care for those who were dying. Their infectious disease spread up on them and they both died joyfully as a representation of the gospel. And as people saw it, they said, man, those guys believe what they preach. They just believe it. Some of you, you're going to leave this campus and you're going to be a missionary to the Burmese people. You're going to go into the jungles of Africa. Some of you are going to go down the Amazon River and get off in villages that have never heard the gospel and you're going to give your life to those people. You're going to trade in the American dream to be a missionary. And some of you are going to go into corporate America to serve and to share Christ with others, into classrooms as teachers, to share the gospel in places that you're not even supposed to. Closed countries, if you will, called science class. And you know who's going to do that heroically? The ones of you that are faithful tomorrow. The ones that are going to do it then are the ones that are doing it now, boldly, living out their faith for the sake of the gospel and proclaiming Christ. I, I beg you, I came here, I left my wife and my kids in Dallas and all the way down here to plead with you, do not waste your life. When I was in Waco, I completely wasted my life. And they say no regrets. I have so many regrets from my time here. Please do not 
waste your life. If I had to do it over, I think I'd share Christ with every student I can. That's why I came here to do it. That you would know him. That guy on the top at the beginning, he wanted to be at the center of it all. But it was undeserving and it was weird. And when we try to be at the center of it all, it's just as broken. It's just going to wear you out. In the same way that that the sun is necessary for our solar system, that our planets orbit around it, and and it it adjusts in ways for the seasons of Earth and our atmosphere perfectly to sustain life so that we can live here and everything revolves around the sun in the same way your life, your person, your being is like a solar system and everything in it has to revolve around the sun, Jesus Christ, God's son. If not, then everything goes chaos. Everything goes out of orbit. Everything spins out of the atmosphere and you begin to feel crazy and stressed. Even if you know him, he's meant to be at the center of everything that you do, everything that you say, every place that you go, everyone that you know, your hobbies, your interests, your classes, your studies, your jobs, your occupations. Christ is meant to be at the center of it all. He's the greatest. You are not the greatest. And the way to be great is you give your life away. You lose it for the sake of Jesus. I'm not talking about lukewarm Christianity. I'm talking about you going 100% crazy nuts all the way in. Be crazy if that's what it means to you. I'm talking go all in. I don't know if you know this, and I'll end with this. Our country, America, has had what is known as four great awakenings. A, a great awakening is, is when our land really returns and, and begins to focus on God. And so this has happened four times in the history of America, the United States of America. There have been events, revivals, if you will, where, where the culture and the people began to take interest, not only in church, they began to go, there was a resurgence, and they began to focus on Christ. And at the center of these revolutions, really at the center of any revolution in history, is a, is a young person. But let me show you something interesting first. The, these great awakenings, they, they happened... And if you, you showed, if I showed them to you on a map, they happen at a rhythm about every 50 years. Literally, like, like 50 years, great awakening. 50 years of rebellion, great awakening. 50 years of rebellion, great awakening. We are in a season of tremendous rebellion right now. People are running from God. They are proud atheists and agnostics. They are, are rejecting Jesus. The last great awakening happened in the late 1960s. So 2018 would put us 50 years later. Let me just show you something. The first Great Awakening was led by Jonathan Edwards, who was 28 years old, and George Whitfield, 26. The second Great Awakening was led by Lyman Beecher, who was 25 years old, and Peter Cartwright, who was 27 years old. The third Great Awakening was led by D.L. Moody at the age of 23, and Ira D. Sankey at the age of 30. The fourth Great Awakening was led significantly by Billy Graham. It says 32. He was in his 20s. 
Okay, at his revival meetings, at the epicenter of every revolution is a young adult, a a young person in their 20s. The sexual revolution, the French revolution, the American revolution, and all of these great awakenings, at the center of them is some young adult, but not a young adult who said, hey, look at me. Hey, I want everyone to look at me. Some young adult who put Jesus at the center. They lost their life for the sake of Jesus. You want to leave here, and you want to be great, and you want God to do something great through you? The only way that's going to happen is if you sincerely and genuinely put Christ at the middle of everything that you do and I believe and I hope and the reason I make this investment is you is I think that that person very well could be in this room that you might wake up tomorrow and decide to live for Jesus and God would use you to change the world That he would bring the attention of your families and your friends and your old friends from high school and the friends you're going to meet in the future to a place where they would surrender their lives to him. What else are you going to give your life to, man? What else are you going to do with your life? White picket fence, German shepherd, a couple babies, 100 million in the bank. What else are you going to do with your life? Pray that you do something that matters. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to open your word. For your example in Jesus Christ and his disciples. Father, thank you for this university. And the work that they do to bring people to know you in a greater way. Father, we have some idols we need you to kill. We have some sins that we need you to be bigger than. We have some objects of worship that we need you to ruin. Would you pry open our hearts the crowbar of your Holy Spirit and make us little Make us tiny, make us small, make us less so that you would become greater in all things. For your glory and renown, for all power is yours forever and ever and ever. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray.